sin that our primary identity is to be your child. That we are set free. No matter how in bondage we might feel, no matter how enslaved we might feel at any given time, no matter how much we may struggle, that is the truth. What you say is true, no matter what our experience might be in the moment. So Father, Be present with us now by your spirit. Preach your word through my feeble lips to the people that you have gathered here for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please be seated. Well, we are continuing our series in the Proverbs tonight, and we've been looking at the Proverbs for the last oh, six weeks or so, six, seven weeks, and um, <clears throat> in each week we've sort of looked at a topic that's covered in the Proverbs, and tonight we're going to be looking at greed and generosity, which is a big theme in that book. And we're just going to take three verses and from there uh, talk about the multiple verses that deal with this in the text, and it reads like this. A greedy man stirs up strife, but the one who trusts in the Lord will be enriched. Whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool, but he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. Whoever gives to the poor will not want, but he who hides his eyes will get many a curse. This is God's word. Well, this name might not be familiar to you, but some time ago... In the 80s, she owned a string of hotels. In fact, she owned the Empire State Building. She was one of the world's few billionaires at the time. Not nearly as common then as it is today. Her name was Leona Helmsley. And yet, in September 1989, Miss Helmsley was convicted of 33 counts of tax evasion, for which she spent time in prison because she didn't pay her taxes. And according to Time Magazine, she emerged as the most penny-pinching tyrant you could possibly know. No amount of money was too small for her to fight over. Even though she had been a billionaire, after the sudden death of her only son at age 40 in 1982, she sued and won the lion's share of his estate, $149,000, leaving his four children with $432 each, and his widow with $2,171. 
just greedy. I think when you hear a story like Leona Helmsley's, it's sort of natural for you to um, gag a little bit, want to vomit. I mean, how can a person be so greedy? And in our day, we hear stories, I mean, that, that are even worse in many cases. I mean, we hear about the Bernie Madoffs of the world and the, you know, the CEO of Enron a few years ago and the fraud mortgages that happened, you know, uh, that caused the big downfall. I guess it's been almost, uh, I guess it's been about 10 years now since that happened. But the public hears of these uber-rich people stealing more and more money from poorer people than they, and, and the revulsion is just, it's so natural. And yet, this is where I think, in general, we make a mistake. Because when it comes to this topic of greed and generosity, we often assume that the perpetrators of greed are the rich people. It's just the rich people. They're the bad guys. But the reality is, the Bible teaches that in one way or another, we're all guilty of succumbing to greed in some way or another. The fact is, from the poorest of the poor to the rich of the rich. And the reason this is, is because greed is something that starts in the heart, it starts in the mind. And, and one can have nothing and be filled with greed, or one can have everything and be filled with greed, because greed is just another word for what the Bible calls coveting. Believing that if you just have this or that, then your life will have more significance and meaning. It's lust, but not after someone else's spouse, after someone else's stuff, possessions, money. So what we're going to talk about tonight is, is why we're prone to greed, what the results are of our greed, and finally, the cure that will make us generous. So first, why do we struggle with greed? Well, I think first of all, because it's socially acceptable and even lauded. In many cases, isn't it? I mean, Gordon Gecko illustrated this well in a speech from the movie Wall Street back in the day. The point is, ladies and gentlemen, that greed, for lack of a better word, is good. Greed is right. Greed works. Greed clarifies, cuts through, and captures the essence of the evolutionary spirit. Greed in all of its forms. Greed for life, for money, for love. Knowledge has marked the upward surge of mankind. You can find even great economists that I think are using the word slightly differently, but like great economists like Milton Friedman, uh, who will talk about the virtue that can be found in a certain kind of greed. And I will grant that, that wanting more is not necessarily bad. We have to be very careful how we define it. But the reality is, I mean, so much of our economy is based on consuming more and more stuff. It's why after 9-11, one of the first things the president instructed the citizens of America to do was to go make sure we were continuing to shop. Because our very system of life is dependent on Things continuing to move. So the natural thing for us to say, well, I can't be greedy because I don't have wealth, but consider, consider this statistic. If 100 people represented the world's population, 53 of those would live on less than $2 a day. And so if you make $4,000 a month, you automatically make 100 times more than the average person on planet Earth. The reason we all tend towards greed is because we tend to give it, I think, God-like status. 
Notice that the proverb that we read does not at first contrast greed and generosity, which I think is interesting, but rather greed and faith. You notice that? Look again at verse 25 in your bulletin. A greedy man stirs up strife, but the one who trusts in the Lord will be enriched. So it's not greed versus generosity, it's greed and faith. Paul flat out writes in Colossians 3.5, greed is idolatry. That's literally the word that he uses. As I, say, I mean, we trust in money the way we're meant to trust in God. This is why Jesus says uh, in the Gospels, you cannot serve both God and money, right? There's a reason he chooses that. We serve it, we treasure it, we love it, we find security in it, we place our faith in it. Frederick Nietzsche, the staunchly atheistic philosopher, even recognized this. He said, uh, what induces one man to use false weights, another to set his house on fire after having insured it for more than its value, while three-fourths of our upper classes indulge in legalized fraud? What gives rise to all this? It is not real want, for their existence is by no means precarious, but they are urged on day and night by a terrible impatience at seeing their wealth pile up so slowly and by an equal, equally terrible longing and love for these heaps of gold. And then he closes with this, insightful. What once was done, quote, for the love of God is now done for the love of money for the love of that which at present affords us the highest feeling of power and a good conscience. Ah, see, now you're getting to like the internal dynamics of why money means so much. It makes us feel powerful and secure. But of course, the results of our greed are not good. The proverb here says it stirs up strife. Other proverbs about greed tell us it leads to isolation, to despair, to discontentment, and finally, even death. The idea is that you can be so consumed with greed that you eventually eat yourself alive. That's the picture here. I couldn't help but think of the movie There Will Be Blood when I was studying the proverbs this week. Uh, if you haven't seen it, you don't need to see it to understand what I'm about to tell you. The film tells the story of Daniel Plainview, an ultra-ambitious, cutthroat oil man willing to do anything to become wealthy. And indeed, he does become obscenely wealthy, but at the highest of costs. Uh, by the end of the film, he is living in the finest of mansions, and he is alone. And he is an alcoholic. And even his own son wants nothing to do with him. And the film quite literally culminates with him beating someone to death that was trying to get some money out of him. It ends with him alone. Or if you're a Lord of the Rings fan, all you need to do is think of Gollum or Smeagol. Starts off as Smeagol. He finds a ring, becomes obsessed with the ring, and it turns him into this monster called Gollum living in a cave all by himself. So that's, that's just shortly, that's the picture of why we're prone to greed and what the results are of it. It doesn't do anything good. It, it, we end up consuming so much that eventually we consume ourselves. That's the idea that the Bible's giving us about greed. So then the, the question is, uh, 
how does it get cured so that we can be the opposite of that and be faith-filled with generosity so that our money doesn't possess us, but we possess it and we can use it for God's purposes and for the good of our neighbor. Well, let me direct you to the second letter to the Corinthians. Paul spends a couple chapters seeking to get that church to be generous toward those who have little. To do this, he does not shame them. He does not make them feel guilty for what they have. And they were quite wealthy. But rather, he brings them to something they've already known. As a matter of fact, the most central aspect of their faith. He says in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, as he's trying to spur them on to generosity, he reminds them of this. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. In other words, the cure for our greed and to be in the, the ability to become more generous is found in that word right there, the gospel. Here's the situation. We were poor, we were destitute, we were lost, we were blind, we were dead in trespasses and sins. That's the language that God uses in his word to describe humanity, the whole lot of us. We have nothing to offer God. We are spiritually bankrupt. That's the picture. The only thing we got in our hands when we come to the Lord is our sin. That's what we have to offer. And Jesus, the eternal second person of the Trinity, having lived in perfect harmony with the Father and the Holy Spirit, takes upon himself flesh, heals us, teaches us, lives perfectly for us, dies for us, so he was, would be forsaken for us on the cross. He becomes poor. That's why he says throughout his ministry, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Even though he runs and owns the entire universe. He gives it all up. He empties himself, Philippians 2 says. To give us what he's always had. Perfect relationship restored with the Father. Eternity in heaven, infinite glory, joy unspeakable. So he rises from the dead, as the scripture says, carrying captives in his train. And so by his poverty, we become rich. Or to put it another way, for our sake, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. When we meditate on that, when we find our identity in that, when we find our identity in that proclamation that we were just singing about, that we are free, that we are children of God based on what Jesus Christ has done for us, based on him giving up everything in order to give us everything, then that just might free us enough to be willing to give up something. Because now we no longer live in fear. But we live in boldness. Because God has declared that no matter what happens, he will take care of us. He's proven it in his son. He's proven it in Jesus Christ. That's the picture of the New Testament. That's the picture of the Bible. That God proves how much he values you by sending his son for you. So therefore you can trust him with anything in life, including all of your things, all of your stuff, every part of the world that we want to find security in, he says, find it in me and I'll give you anything, I'll give you what you need. To read from a well-known passage out of Matthew, 
where he says, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. He then goes on to say, therefore I tell you, don't be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air that neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns and yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Do you hear what he's saying? He wants you to find your identity in what he tells you you are. Since you're so valuable, you're so much more valuable than these and God takes care of them, of course he's going to take care of you. That's the idea. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to, the sp to your span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? There that's, there's that word again. Faith. When faith apprehends a God who lives, dies, and raises again for the forgiveness of your sins, then that faith can extend out to your neighbor. Because God is generous to you, you can be generous to others. And I'll tell you what, you'll never feel more free than when you're trusting God enough to be recklessly generous. And I mean that. I mean recklessly generous. Like there's, I have known people that have given uh, amounts to mission and to various causes that the world would say they're crazy because of how much they've given. And I'm telling you, I'm telling you, they're some of the most content people I know. The most content people I know are just people that their, their money does not, it does not own them. They own money. Now, here's the question that always comes up with the idea of generosity and greed and that sort of thing. And that is, well, how much should I give? How much should I be generous with? And I don't think the Bible actually in the New Testament tells you what a, a specific number is. I don't think the New Testament commands Christians that they have to give 10%. I don't think so. I mean, I think that's fine if you want to. But I think C.S. Lewis says it well when he says, I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. He goes on after that quote to say, you know, if basically... We should give enough that it feels like it might hinder something that we want to do a little bit. But that's about as much guiding, guidance as he gives. And I'm sort of with him there. I'm like, I don't, you know, the Bible says in, in 2 Corinthians 9 uh, that God loves a cheerful giver and that no one should give out of compulsion. I don't ever, ever, I don't ever want anybody to give out of a sense of obligation or guilt. I want people to give because they want to. Because they, they desire to out of gratitude to God. There's a wonderful illustration of all this in the story of Zacchaeus. Some of you, if you grew up in Sunday school, when you hear the name Zacchaeus, you think of a wee little man. Um, well, this is the wee little man, Zacchaeus, the tax collector. 
And he was about as greedy as you could get. He was a chief tax collector. So, I mean, tax collectors were already bad. Chief tax collectors were the worst of the worst. And, uh, and Jesus, to everybody's astonishment, approaches Zacchaeus, of all people in this large crowd, and says, I want to go to your house. The Pharisees and the religious leaders grumble. He's going to that, that sinner's house. He's going to the chief tax collector's house. They can't stand the fact that Jesus wants to eat and hang out with sinners. But because of this incredible act of grace, it changed Zacchaeus. And what happens? If you read verse 8 of that story, it produces a new desire in Zacchaeus. He stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods, I give it to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. You see that? You see how the act of God graciously coming to where Zacchaeus was at changes Zacchaeus' heart so that he feels free to give up what he had strived so much for? The grace we receive from God is what ultimately will lead to us being gracious and generous to others. I figured I'd close with a, an illustration of what this could look like um, from a couple in Canada. It was a while back. They, they won $11.3 million in the lottery. Yeah, that's a lot of money. And they gave almost all of it away. And what I was struck by was just the attitude of the couple as they're interviewed. So I want to read to you just a couple of the quotes here. Quote, What you've never had, you never miss. 78-year-old 70 year Violet Large explained to a local reporter. She had been undergoing chemotherapy treatment for cancer when the couple realized they'd won the lottery. That money we won was nothing. End quote said her husband. We have each other. End quote. The money was a, quote, headache. End quote. It brought anxiety and the prospect that crooked people might take advantage of us. So we just began an $11 million donation spree to get rid of it and help others. They took care of their family first and then began delivering donations to two pages worth of groups they had decided on, including the local fire department and churches and cemeteries and the Red Cross and the Salvation Army and hospitals in Truro and Halifax, where Violet underwent her cancer treatment and organizations that fight cancer, Alzheimer's, and diabetes. The list goes on and on and on. And they did retain 2% of the jackpot for themselves. A little bit. Money for a rainy day. And this is what she said. We haven't spent one cent on ourselves because we've been too busy getting everything looked after and with my health. I have to wait to get my health back to get the energy to do anything. We're not travelers anyway. We live in the country and we're proud of it. Money can't buy you health or happiness. End quote. Do you hear the freedom? I mean, I, I almost want to jump into the newspaper and be like, no, 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 shh, like, keep more. Keep more for yourself. 
You never know. Like you never know. Like you might, you know, like there might be a bad time. Keep more. They seem so calm and so relaxed and so free. Now, uh, I don't know what it is God may be calling you to. I don't know how generous God is calling you to be, and it's not for me to decide for you. It really isn't. But I just want to encourage you that if you, if you feel that thing inside of you, that it, it is holding back and you feel like you should do something more or be more generous, you know what? Take the risk and give into that because God promises that he's going to take care of you. God loves a cheerful giver. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to trust him with that. With that, I'll close. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gracious challenge of generosity. Uh, I think it's just such a polar difference when I think about the, the picture of greed, just hoarding more and gathering more and gathering more and getting bigger and bigger and generosity making us smaller and smaller and you larger and larger. Father, that's what I want to see. I want to see you make a church here in New York City filled with people that aren't afraid to trust you recklessly with their lives. That aren't afraid to give their time and their treasure to serve the poor, which we are so surrounded by in this area. That aren't afraid to, to recklessly go out and give to people that they know are in need because they know you're going to take care of them. Father, work that in my own heart too and forgive me for the stinginess that I can so often fall prey to. God, let us be free again in the good news that because of what you've done for us in the person of Jesus Christ, we're owned by you, bought by you, and nothing else ever owns us again. In Jesus' name we pray.